Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm your producer, Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Recently, Rob completed a teaching series entitled Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns. This course will teach you how the book of Psalms was arranged and motivate you to create a personal hymn book inside your mind. You'll also journey alongside a young music minister as Rob guides him through 60 classic hymns we should never lose. This unique course includes a downloadable guide to the book of Psalms, live music samples of select hymns, and a bonus interview with worship professor Vernon Whaley. For a limited time, we're offering this nine-session online course at a 50% discount. Visit robertjmorgan.com and click on the Courses link to find and enroll in this self-paced study using any computer or mobile device. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are. This is Robert J. Morgan, and I'm so grateful that you are following along with this podcast. It's a Bible study podcast, and I hope that you will share it with others. We are studying the Unstoppable Church in the book of Acts, but before we get there, I want to say a personal word relating to something that is a deep conviction of mine. You know, for many years, I have been an advocate of hymnody and the retention of hymns in our worship services. I'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't sing contemporary Christian music because I love the newer music, and I'm glad that we have it, and I'm glad we've got a new generation playing and singing and writing new songs. But contemporary Christian music is temporary Christian music because there is not a song that lasts for more than a few weeks or maybe a few months. Uh, We learn a new song and we sing through it until we sing it to death and then it becomes disposable and it's chasing the radio. And you cannot have an effective worship ministry in a church if you are simply chasing the radio because you aren't building people's internal hymn books. You are not giving them lifelong lyrics that they can cherish. We need some of these great hymns like How Great Thou Art and Blessed Assurance and It Is Well With My Soul and Praise Ye the Lord the Almighty, the King of Creation and All Creatures of Our God and King and I Sing the Mighty Power of God and I could go on and on. But we need those to be passed down to our children and to be written in the internal music chambers of their hearts. And if we fail to do that, then we're not really building strong worshipers in our churches. And I think it's time for us to be assertive about this. Time to talk to our pastor, to our worship leaders, to the worship staff, to the deacons, to the elders, and just to insist, and I'm really using that word purposefully, to insist that there be hymnody included in the worship services so that we do not become the first generation in at least Protestant history, maybe in all of Christian history, to lose the heritage of everything that came before us in worship. So there are several things you can do. Again, talk to your worship leader, to your pastor, to the people in your church, um, and make a point of making sure that we have hymns there. You can also uh, read and give away my books, Then Sings My Soul, the various editions of them, 
And I have a, a video course on the history of hymnody, and it's called Saving, Singing, and Sharing the Hymns. And I think you would enjoy it very much because I give you 20 hymns we must never lose, 20 hymns that describe the history of Christianity, and 20 more hymns that are very personal to me. And I go into the book of Psalms and talk about the importance of maintaining our own individual lifelong hymn book of the heart. So help me with this crusade and let's be active in saving, sharing, and singing the hymns. And please let me know how that goes with you and with your church. Now today I want to get to our study in the book of Acts via the book of Isaiah. So turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 26. There's a verse here that will establish our theme. It's a very interesting verse. So Isaiah 26. Now this chapter describes millennial Jerusalem. It describes what the city of Jerusalem will be like when Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years as we read about in Revelation chapter 20. But the principles here are transferable to our lives now. It also sort of represents a state of mind that we should have. For example, in Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Yahweh forever there is everlasting strength, or there is a rock of ages. Well, that's true for millennial Jerusalem. But as so many of us know who have gone to this passage again and again, it's a state of mind that we can achieve now by God's grace. So now what I want to show you is verse 12. This is the key verse, and it's the last part of this verse. And this is a profound teaching that I found a number of years ago in the writings of Jerry Bridges of the Navigators. He did the story of his life in one of his books, and this was his key verse, and I'd never seen it before then. But look at Isaiah 26 and verse 12. All that we have accomplished. We've accomplished some things in other words. But all that we have accomplished, you have done. All that we accomplished, you have done. It isn't us accomplishing anything. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Now, Jesus said the same thing in negative terms when he said, without me, you can do nothing. And what I want to lay on your hearts today is that our tangential ministry may end up being our tremendous ministry, our greatest ministry. The greatest things that we do for the Lord may be the things that we don't even realize are occurring. So let's go with that background and with that as our theme to the book of Acts, back to chapter 13. This is where Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are sent out. They go to the island of Cyprus and evangelize that. And then in the middle of the chapter, they cross the Mediterranean up to southern Turkey and go inland to the city of Pisidian Antioch. And that story is given to us in the last half of chapter 15, uh, or chapter 13, rather. And then in chapter 14, they go further inland. They go eastward into this area of Galatia. 
and they come to a city called Lystra. Now, we think we know where the city of Lystra is. It's covered over, and there aren't very many archaeological remains of it that we can access. But Luke here tells us what happened in Lystra. Chapter 14 of Acts and verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened as Paul was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had the faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up, and he began to walk. So this is very similar to what happened with John and Peter in the uh, third chapter of the book of Acts when they were going into the temple and there was a lame man, lame from his um, birth, and he was healed. So it says in verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Most of these people apparently were not Jewish background people. There were Gentiles, although as we will see, there must have been some Jews somewhere. But these were people who were uh, pagans and who worshiped the Greek gods. And so it says in verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So they had seen this tremendous miracle, and they didn't have any background except for their Greek and Roman mythology. And so they took these two men as representatives or as being these gods come down in human form. And it says in verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then it goes on to say, in the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now, when Paul was speaking to, the, to Hebrew background believers, he always began with the Old Testament. When he was speaking to Gentiles, he would always begin with common grace, and with the creation of God and how God made everything. And he says to these unsaved pagan uh, idol worshipers, he said, look up, God is the one, the God that I serve who has been kind to you and gives you rain and gives you crops and gives you food and fills your hearts with joy. But it says in verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then in verse 19, there came some Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, outside of Lystra, thinking he was dead. How quickly public opinion can shift on a dime. One moment here, they're worshiping Paul as God, and now they are stoning him as a charlatan. And they think that he's dead, that they've stoned him to death like they did Stephen. 
But this strange verse, 20, But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. We don't know whether he was divinely healed or whether he hadn't been hurt that badly or maybe he had been resurrected from the dead. We just don't know. But he didn't let obstacles stop him. This was not a man easily defeated. And he got up and he went right on. He went back into the city. But the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. And nothing more is said. And after that, they return to Antioch and their first missionary journey is over. But now let's fast forward three years and look with me at chapter 16. Paul, on his second missionary journey, three years later, comes back to the city of Lystra and look at what he finds. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And this young Timothy, probably 15 years old, I'm guessing he was right at 15, he went with Paul. Paul mentored him, and this Timothy went on to become one of the greatest pastors of the first century who pastored the tremendous church at Ephesus and to whom Paul wrote two different letters. So three years later, when Paul came back, there was a church there. It may have been a very small church, but it included two women and a boy. Now, let's go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll pick up one other clue, and then we can connect the dots. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 3, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and then in your mother Eunice, and then in you. So it doesn't appear that all of these three were converted to Christ at the same time. The grandmother was converted first. So we don't know exactly how she was converted, but if you uh, read between the lines, it would seem the Apostle Paul and Barnabas came to the city of Lystra. Here they healed one lame man. It created a riot. They were stoned, and they weren't there very long, and then they left. But there were people who heard the message, and this mother, this grandmother, Lois, heard the message. And she believed, and then her daughter believed. And then their 15-year-old son, who may have been 12 at the time, he believed. Now, they had a Hebrew background. We know that from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul said to Timothy, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, referring to the Old Testament. So these two women had a Hebrew background. Lois was a godly Hebrew woman, and Eunice had married a pagan Greek and had Timothy, but Paul went through the area, and apparently without him knowing it, 
Lois heard the, uh, Eunice heard the gospel. She was converted and then her daughter was converted and then Timothy was converted. And three years later, when Paul came back, there was fruit from his ministry of which he had known nothing. It was a tangential ministry. It was a ripple effect ministry. It was a time-lapse ministry, but it became his greatest ministry. What we do at the time may or may not seem to yield results, but over time, our ministry is not in vain. What we do for the Lord does not return to us void, and our tangential ministry becomes our largest ministry. Some years ago, a man called me, and I happened to know him because he was a pastor in my denomination. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that our church went through your book, The Red Sea Rules. And we gave members copies of this book, and one family had it in the back seat of their car, and their next-door neighbor walked by. And he looked down through the window, and he said, what's that book? And they said, this is the book we're studying at church, and they gave it to him. And that book became the catalyst through which he came to faith in Christ. Now, I would never have dreamed that or known that or realized that when I wrote the book or when we sent them out. And I wouldn't have known it then except that pastor happened to be a member of my denomination. It was a time-lapse ministry, several steps removed from me, but it was tangential to what I was doing. And I think this is true. All that we have done God has done for us. And this is what brings about a core of humility in our lives. We realize that it's not us doing anything. All that we have done, the Lord has done for us. So that gives us, that is the basis of humility in our Christian experience. And when we have that humility before God, then it removes competition between us who are in Christian ministry, and that creates humility towards one another. So I think the story of the Apostle Paul in the city of Lystra and the subsequent conversion of this one family resulting in this 15-year-old becoming one of the greatest pastors in the first century is a great illustration of Isaiah chapter 26. All that we have done, you have done for us. And getting back to the great hymns of the faith, I want to close today with a verse of a hymn that means so much to me. And in times of weariness and frustration, I go back and I sing this as a prayer to the Lord. I don't know that I could ever come up with a prayer in my own words as good as this one. Maybe it will be an encouragement to you. It goes along the lines of what we've been talking about. O Master, let me walk with Thee in lowly paths of service free. Tell me Thy secret. Help me to bear the strain of toil, the fret of care. Well, for my producers at Clearly Media, this is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, robertjmorgan.com. And watch for me every day on Facebook and Instagram with my 59-second sermons. And may God bless you and keep you. 
and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may God be with you until we meet again.